calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Shadows of the Door, the podcast. I'm Mark Nixon, and if this is your first time joining us, each episode David Alt and I will be featuring a ghost story and then discussing the ideas and themes. I feel the ghost story genre doesn't necessarily have to feature a literal ghost, and instead it describes the atmosphere of a story. As such, today's episode may come as a surprise, as we bring you a forgotten classic. Washington Irving is best known for the legend of Sleepy Hollow, but instead we present his Faustus-like deal with the devil, a story that has influenced many writers ever since. The story is entitled The Devil and Tom Walker. It was written by Irving in 1824, and was adapted by me in, well, 2018. It concerns a man, a deal, and a debt to be paid. So, gather round the fire, pour yourself some tea, and we'll begin. A few miles from Boston, Massachusetts, there is a deep river winding several miles from Charles Bay and ending in a thickly wooded swamp. To one side of this river is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge on which grow scattered oak trees of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was once a great amount of treasure buried by Kid the Pirate. 
The river allowed for secret travel, and one night it was hidden at the very foot of the hill, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. There is more to the old story, however. The devil himself presided at the hiding of the money, and took it under his guardianship, as it is well known that he always does so with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-begotten. Be that as it may, Kidd never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for crimes of piracy. The year was 1727, and lived near this place was a meager, miserly fellow by the name of Tom Walker. His wife, too, was as equally tight-fisted as her husband, and the pair was so much so that they even considered to cheat money away from each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on she hid away, and her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hoards. They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. No smoke ever curled from its chimney, and no traveller ever stopped at its door. At times Walker would stand outside, lean his head over the fence, and look piteously at any passerby and seem to petition deliverance from this land of famine. Tom's wife was a tall termagant, fierce of temper, loud of tongue, and strong of arm. Her voice could often be heard in warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words alone. Suffice to say, the house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. One day, Tom had been to a distant part of the neighbourhood and took what he believed to be a shortcut homeward through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with huge, gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them ninety feet high, which brought with it a premature darkness at midday and a retreat for all the owls of the neighbourhood. The ground was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses where the green surface often betrayed travellers into a pit of thick, smothering mud. Tom had long been picking his way cautiously through this treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots, and pacing very much like a cat. At last he reached firm ground, a peninsula deep in the bosom of the swamp. It had once been used as a stronghold by the native Indians in their wars with the first colonists. However, all that remained of their fort were overgrown embankments. It was already late in the day when Walker took the opportunity for a small rest. Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in such a lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it from the stories handed down from the times of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that the savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Walker, however, was not a man troubled by such fears. He rested against a tree for some time and began absently to kick at the dried mud beneath him. Now, what on earth is this? A skull. 
with a tomahawk buried in it. Hard luck, my friend. Leave that alone. Oh, I didn't hear your approach, friend. Never mind getting yourself so comfortable on that stump. What are you doing on my grounds? Your grounds? These grounds are no more yours than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody. Deacon Peabody be damned. And he will be if he does not pay more attention to his own sins than those of his neighbours. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Hmm? Oh, that tree, it, it's rotten to the core. Why, it looks like the next strong wind will blow it down and... And on the bark, what's, what's that scratched? A Deacon Peabody? He's just ready for burning. Wait, all of these trees are marked with the great men of the colony. So you see, I'm likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. And that stump you're on, it, it's marked with crown and shield. Well, he's one of the richest men in town. But what gives you the right to cut down all of the timber? The right to pry a claim. This wood belonged to me long before one of your white-faced race took step on this land. But you're not Indian, and despite your darkened features, you're clearly not Negro. Bray, who are you, if I may be so bold? Oh, I go by various names. I'm the wild huntsman in some countries the Black Miner in others. In this neighbourhood, I'm known by the name of the Black Woodsman. I am he to whom the Red Men consecrated this spot, and in honour of whom they now and then roasted a white man, by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. Since the Red Men have been exterminated by you white savages, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grand master of the Salem witches. The upshot of all this is, if I'm not mistaken, you are the one they call Old Scratch. <laughs> the very same. Such was the opening of the interview, according to the old story. One would think that to meet with such a person in that wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves. But Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with such an overbearing wife that he did not fear even the devil. It is said that after this commencement they had a long and earnest conversation together as Tom returned homeward. The man told him of great sums of money buried by Kid the pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge. It was under his command and protected by his power, so that none could find them but those in his favour. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him. 
but this was to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may be easily surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles when money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. What proof have I that all you've been telling me is true? Give me your hand. Ah! Ah! That's my signature. In so saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen, and so on, until he totally disappeared. Signature indeed. The thing won't rub off. Upon his return home, Walker learned from his wife of the sudden death of Crown and Shield, as reported in the paper, and though the news did not bother him, it convinced him that the day's events had not been mere illusion. Naturally, Walker was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. And oh, how her face awakened at the prospect of gold and lifelong wealth. She urged her husband to agree to scratch his terms. Although Walker was willing to sell himself to the devil, he was not so willing to do so to oblige his wife. And thus, he flatly refused out of mere spite. The two had many a bitter and cruel quarrel that night, but the more she talked, the more resolute Walker was to spite her. At length, she determined to drive her own bargain, and if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old Indian fort the next day. She was many hours absent. When she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a black man, whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms, so she was to go again with an offering but what it was she forbore to say. The next evening she set off again for the swamp, with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned, but still she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed, another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of more. What was her real fate, nobody knows, in consequence of so many pretending to know. It is one of those facts which have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp and sank into some pit. Others, more uncharitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made it off to some other province, while others surmised that the tempter had decoyed her into a dismal quagmire on the top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, it was said that a great dark man, with an axe on his shoulder, 
was seen late that very evening coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron with an air of surly triumph. History observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and property that he set out at length to seek them both at the Indian fort. One gloomy afternoon he searched the place, but no wife was to be seen. Well, I seem to only gain the attention of you crows. But what's that you're pecking at? In that tree? Hanging underneath that vulture is... It's my wife's apron. Now, let me get a hold of my property and, and endeavor to do without the woman. with you. Finally. Here we are. Oh, good lord. Oh, oh this, is, this is flesh. Organs, heart and liver. She must have found old Scratch and, and attempted to deal with him the way she is accustomed to in dealing with me. Oh. Well, I would have considered her a scold a match for the devil. Oh. Evidence suggests she came out the worst of it. Those cloven footprints and, and these tufts of torn black hair. He gads. Old Scratch must have had a tough time with it. <laughs> Perhaps he's done me a kindness. Maybe I should seek him again after all. Ah, Scratch, there you are. I've been waiting some time. Uh, hello? Hello? Eventually, Tom brought the devil to business his patience having been whittled to the point where he'd agree to almost anything. They began to haggle about the terms on which Walker was to have the pirate's treasure. There was one condition which need not be mentioned, being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favours, but there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inflexibly obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service, 
He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the black traffic, that is to say, that he should fit out a slave ship. This, however, Tom resolutely refused. He was bad enough in all conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave trader. Fine. I need not a squeamish slave trader. No, instead you shall open a broker's shop in Boston next month. I'll do it tomorrow if you wish. You shall lend money at two percent a month. Egad, I'll charge four. You shall extort bonds, foreclose mortgages, drive the merchants to bankruptcy. Why, I shall drive them to the devil. <laughs> you are the usurer for my money. When will you want the money? Well, this very night. Done. Done. And so they shook hands and struck the bargain. A few days' time saw Walker behind his desk in a bank in Boston. His reputation as a wealthy man, who would lend money to almost anyone, soon spread. It was a time of paper credit. The country had been flooded with government bills, the famous land bank had been established, there had been a rage for speculating. The people had run mad with schemes for new settlements, for building cities in the wilderness. Land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and Eldorados lying nobody knew where, but which everybody was ready to purchase. In a word, the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree, and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing. As usual, the fever had subsided, the dream had gone off, and the imaginary fortunes with it. The patients were left in doleful plight, and the whole country resounded with the consequent cry of hard times. At this propitious time of public distress did Tom Walker set up as usurer in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers. The needy and adventurous, the gambling spectator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit, in short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices, hurried to Tom Walker. Thus Tom was the universal friend to the needy, and acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them at length, dry as a sponge, from his door. In this way he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man. He built himself a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished, out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it. And as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axles, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. As Tom grew old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret of the bargain he had made with Old Scratch, and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. 
He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by the force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the extent of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians, who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward, were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid in religious as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbors, and seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Still, in spite of all this, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he always carried a small Bible in his coat pocket. He also had a great folio Bible on his counting house desk, and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spectacles in the book to mark the place, while he turned round to drive some usurious bargain. One hot summer afternoon, just as a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated and refused another delay. But sir, my family will be ruined. Please, can't you offer any charity? Charity begins at home. I must take care of myself in these harsh times. You have made so much money out of me already. <laughs> the devil take me if I have made so much as a farthing. Walker, you've been come for. No. Wait, my Bible, I've... I've left it in the desk. Uh, no. Come here. No, put me down. Put me down, I say. No. No. No, you can't do this. No. The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders, but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were reduced to cinders. Two skeletons lay in his stable instead of his half-starved horses, and the very next day his great house took fire and was burned to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Let all money brokers lay this story to heart. The truth of it is not to be doubted. The very hole under the oak trees where he dug kids' money is to be seen to this day. 
and the neighboring swamp and old Indian fort are often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. So, that was The Devil and Tom Walker by Washington Irving, adapted by me, Mark Nixon. So, if you didn't like it, do not blame Washington Irving. (laughs) It's all me. (laughs) I'm joined by the entire cast. Hello. It's me, David Alt again. Hello. Hello. And, uh, yes, The Devil and Tom Walker, pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries of my accent skills. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, an interesting story, and one that is uh, a, a trope from all across fiction, mm. really. And we, we thought that in, uh, in this discussion we'd, we'd talk a little bit about representations of the devil. Yes, from uh, Liz Hurley to Ned Flanders. <laughs> <laughs> Liz Hurley. It, as I said, we, we were talking earlier, and, and uh, Mark said... Well, yes, The Devil and Tom Walker was adapted into Brendan Fraser and Liz Hurley bedazzled, and, and I, was, I was outraged and, oh. and shocked because it was a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film before it was Brendan Fraser and Liz And that's Hurley. just the age between us really showing. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so young and beautiful. <laughs> just young. No, I'm 30. I'm not young. At least we're, we're still in the same decade. Hey, <laughs> there we go. And there's not that many years between us. But I, I'm really happy that we have adapted this story and mm. delivered it to the masses because it frustrates me to no end that not many people have heard of it before. Mm, I hadn't heard of it, to be honest, where, before you said, we're going to do The Devil and Tom Walker. I don't bully David, guys. I suggest and he agrees. <laughs> <laughs> it is a collaborative process. Indeed. But it, it is, it's an old story. Uh, obviously, Washington Irving, who many of you will know um, for writing Sleepy Hollow, um, tremendous writer, and it's it's been 
adapted into a story called The Devil and Daniel Webster, where it took a very uh, a real, the real figure of Daniel Webster, this lawyer, and used uh, him to outsmart the devil in court. Um, now, if this is sounding familiar, you're probably thinking of the episode of The Simpsons in which Homer sells his donut. Uh, no! <laughs> Homer it, sells his soul for a donut. He sells his soul for a donut. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there were film adaptations of The Devil and Daniel Webster, and, and then, of course, the ones that we've discussed as well. Mm-hmm. And, and then it really just, it kind of, like, just seeps into general culture around the mm, devil. Mm-hmm. And I, I love a deal with the devil. <laughs> uh, who, who doesn't, really? Mm. It never works out the way you want it. Mm. No, of course. And, and uh, of course, in the last episode, we talked about things like Drag Me to Hell mm-hmm. with Sam Raimi. Uh, and there again, there's that, there's that feeling of, uh, of we want the protagonist to get out of the the spell, mm-hmm. the deal, the the whatever, and we 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 know that there is an an inevitability mm-hmm. about it, and we want them to to escape. But um, spoilers, well, it was a long time ago. The our, our protagonist in that does get dragged to hell, and I mean, you would feel cheated, yes, if you she didn't get dragged to hell. Yes, yeah. yes, and. Uh, and the devil and Tom Walker. Obviously, Tom Walker gets gets. Well, there's no spoilers because you just heard the story. Yes, gets taken away, uh, and and so on and so forth. But so, what I love is that he he actually initially rejects the deal. Like mm. He thinks about it, goes home, and then he only does it like he decides not to do it because his wife wants him to, mm. and he rejects the deal to piss off his wife. <laughs> I mean, I need to learn more about Washington Irving because the guy's either a brilliant writer or that guy hated his wife. <laughs> In a way, it, it turns on the head of the Scottish play where you've got yes. uh, the Lady Macbeth there as the wife saying, you've got to take notice of this, mm-hmm. um, this prophecy. And then, of course, all of the, all of the events of that particular play... Uh, pan out and not for the better for well certainly for most people in it I love how you try not to spoil Macbeth <laughs> <laughs> some people might not have seen it well. <laughs> um, but yeah so it's there, there is that idea of, of not so much that that isn't so much a deal with the devil but mm-hmm. it's certainly seen as satanic powers oh, yeah. reaching out to corrupt this good man mm-hmm. Uh, and it is through his wife that he does end up uh, going down that course, uh, th- th- going down that route. Yeah. Um, so yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that people have taken up offers, deals, whatever, um, with darker forces mm-hmm. uh, throughout throughout fiction. So in terms of in terms of representations of the devil, I mean we we've seen him. As yes, as Ned Flanders, as Liz Hurley, mm-hmm. as uh, Peter Cook, um, but we see him or her as everything from the goat-headed Prince of Darkness mm-hmm. to I mean, I've I've played the devil. Before I was going to say you're very familiar with Lucifer, <laughs> aren't you? Yes, in so many ways. Yes. Um, yeah, I've I've played the devil before now. Um, I think it's it's in in an audio drama universe which, for a while, for a long time, has been dominated by America. Mm-hmm. A British voice 
does tend to be used as uh, people who are sinister mm-hmm. and people with an agenda and the devil. Well, Disney, a lot of their early mm. villains were British. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what, what do the Americans have against the British? I don't understand. It's just they're still a bit bitter about. Um, I'm still bitter about the tea. Yeah, a lot of waste of good tea. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think a lot. Of, there's a bit of a. I don't know if it's it's probably a cliche now that the devil's always like a very smartly dressed man in, in, in a suit with slick back hair, and and I think that. Especially to an American, that idea of, 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 of something being quite smart and suave. Yeah, English, British, that's going to come through. And of course, that, uh, that's counterpointed by um, uh, Bruce Almighty, where you've got Morgan Freeman as God. Yeah. Which is, I, I, I do like that film, but that's... That's, <laughs> that's for our other podcast. Yes. Where <laughs> we do biblical stories. Yes. But what I like about this story, and especially with it being so old, is that the devil is quite, um, he's got, he's, it's described as having quite a gruff accent, and mm. he's, he's chopping down wood. Now, one thing I did find a little bit uncomfortable when I was writing, when I was adapting it, is the, the it is heavily said that the devil is a Negro, uh, that's the word they use, mm-hmm. uh, I believe they use another word at one point, and, you know, he's like, he's, I think it says something along the lines of, you know, he, he was... He was dark, but not a Negro, not a black man. You know, <laughs> like if all one word. And <laughs> I, I, that's a very important aspect to the story. I was not comfortable mm-hmm. of the narrator's voice saying that. Obviously, it was a different time, but that's why we, we have put it into the dialogue mm-hmm. uh, to establish that that's how we, he is seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the gruff voice was enough. And mm-hmm. I believe you opted for a nice, thick Yorkshire accent as well. <laughs> <laughs> I should have thought, like, e back him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, um, uh, just there are plenty of places around here called Hellwath, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, any anywhere that uh, has a Hobbs Hole mm-hmm. uh, is obviously a place where you've got links to the devil. In fact, uh, down the road in Boroughbridge, we've got the Devil's Arrows, mm-hmm. which are three standing stones. Which, uh, so the legend goes, the the devil decided to throw them, and that's where they landed. Okay. Three in pretty much a direct line running north-south. Expect this story in season two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the devil, anywhere there is a, a hole into the earth. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the devil is, uh, it, it's not just in folklore, it's also in the very physical world around that, that he, she has been given uh, credit for the landscape. Mm-hmm. Think of the story. He's obviously um, mm. chopping down trees, which are um, the, the representations of people who he has the the, the dealings with as mm. well. Um, I do I do like how the devil is angry at white men for you know purporting to own the land mm. as well. And he's like, I was here long before mm. you were. Um, and I'm I'm responsible for the you know I was presiding at the Salem. Salem trials and things such as that as well, which of course is all deeply seated into the uh, New England mm. history of America as well. I yeah, so that's. I guess America's just not as old as Britain, mm-hmm. which is. <laughs> is that, that's that lovely Eddie Izzard sketch. Do you know? Do you I'm know not familiar. Ah, um, where uh, he says uh, he, he went to a place in Florida. I think it was Florida, um, and the the tour guide said, and and this room has been. Uh, restored to how it was almost 50 years ago. <laughs> and he goes, what? 50? 
50 years ago. <laughs> now, of course, the, the the devil that we that generally gets referenced throughout horror is a is a very Christianized or Judeo Christian devil mm. uh, that is put against God and the forces of the light, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but of course, as you've just said in The Devil and Tom Walker, there, there is that very much that, that idea that the devil represents more than just the forces of evil. Mm-hmm. It, it has in the past been um, the, 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 more the forces of the earth mm-hmm. and the spirits of the earth as opposed to the spirits of the air and the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with the tarot, the devil card isn't so signaling that there is suddenly going to be some evil in life. Mm-hmm. It represents, or to some people, it represents the the chains that are binding you to an earthly or a, a lower existence, mm-hmm. uh, stopping you from realizing more the potential. So the devil represents more than just evil it represents the lower the lower things of life yeah um it's like temptation given form yes yes mm-hmm. um but i think it, the the idea behind that tarot card is that is, is actually quite an important one because it's very easy to get sucked into the nine to five existence of society and the sort of mundane aspects of life Mm -hmm. and in many ways that's what that card is showing it's being bogged down in the minutiae of existence rather than seeking the higher aspects Mm. uh, which is a very different perspective and one which I, I, I think is a lot more useful than just good and evil Mm -hmm. because that's very binary and I don't think existence is binary no like that but bring us back to something more (laughs) (laughs) and I've I've gone on for a while no I was just thinking because um, nearly all deals with the devil I mean they're obviously I, I imagine you do a deal with Jesus, it's going to be a lot more boring and safe, but it's, <laughs> people use him for very selfish means. Uh, Walker, mm. we, we discussed how he's, you know, he initially says no, but then, and, he, and then he goes, yeah, I don't want to be a slave owner, mm. but I will become a loan shark. Mm-hmm. But then he becomes preoccupied with his salvation. Now, he uses it as a way to cheat out of the deal, but then that does link into what you were just saying about mm. there being a higher thing. Now, I am not in any way advocating <laughs> Christianity or any religion. Mm. Uh, I am atheist through and through, but it, it, it does imply that you know he, he did well, there were more things in life. His money was only getting him so far, mm. you know, and he, and he had a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've walked right into a Christmas carol right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yes, it's it's very true. The, the deals tend to be very selfish. They are they are there to um, give the the person what they want at that point. And they you know, hang the consequences. The consequences can come later. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a big loan that then you are going to have to pay back yeah. for 
all eternity or for a specific length of time. This is getting really real. I'm just thinking about the, the, the country's economic situation now. Well, yes. <laughs> a, a mortgage, of course, comes from the word more, meaning death. Right, I'm going to write a story about Brexit and we'll do that next, <laughs> we'll do that next time. <laughs> that would be far too real. <laughs> um, but, yes, it's if I go back to the uh, bedazzled with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, mm-hmm. uh, of course... We know that Lucifer used to be an angel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dudley Moore is there saying, Okay, so you were an angel. So what was it like? And Peter Cook says, Well, you know, um, there's God sitting. Tell you what, you get up on that post box. So Peter Cook gets up on the, the post box and says, Tell you what, why don't you just just go, go around this post box and, and worship me. Go on. Worship me, and t- tell me what's tell me what what you like about me. And <laughs> Dudley Moore's there. They're going um, uh, right. Okay, uh, God, you're you're wonderful. Uh, yeah, oceans. Those are a really good idea. Fish. Really like fish. Um, yeah, and birds. Birds. They're they're nice. Um, and Peter Cook's there going yes, yes, very good, very good. Now come on, keep keep going. And Dudley Moore eventually just goes. You know what? This is boring. I don't mm. want to do this anymore. And Peter Cook says, yeah, you know, that's what, that's what I felt. And look at me now. Here I am doing, you know, stealing someone's gooseberry jam and, and you know, cause, uh, blah, 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 blah. But it, it's that idea that, that the, the deal with Jesus is, uh, is basically resisting temptation, resisting all of the, all of the earthly things mm-hmm. and, and solely being focused on heaven um, whereas uh, a deal with the devil, or at least not the deal with, with Jesus, if you like, uh, is engaging or engaging with life and, and with the things of the earth. Hmm. The Sufis have a, a, a little um, uh, a saying which says, uh, if, I, if I do anything in the hope of heaven, then deny me heaven. If I do something in fear of hell, then give me hell. Hmm. Uh, and this idea of eternal reward and eternal punishment is again very binary and is not a good is not a real motivator. It's it's a it's a very selfish motivator, and that in fact, what we should be doing with our lives is doing things without fear or hope of reward or punishment. Mm -hmm. And so these ideas of the devil and of God are both actually two sides of the same coin because they are trying to bog us down in in an unhelpful state of being, really. Uh, And certainly there's been plenty of fiction out there that has shown God and the devil in as the same person or as the same idea mm-hmm. but again that's coming from it very much from a judeo-christian point of view this has gotten very deep hasn't it It has i'm terribly yeah. sorry no I, it's <laughs> fine it's just people are expecting a little bit of trivia about the devil and... yes yes and and here i am going on about um about the sufis <laughs> i can't help it it's an audiobook series i do i, I can't help but but take it all in hmm but then I, and I'm suddenly thinking, eternal bliss would get a bit boring after a while, wouldn't it? 
You've mm. got to, I think... That's it. That's whoa, it. Whoa, That's the story. Sorry. That's the story I wanted. Thank you. Thank oh you. Oh right. So, um, <laughs> edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave it in there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another story. A group of people go to hell and they find that every wish is fulfilled and they've got plenty of money and... This is in hell? This is in hell. Okay. And they're good looking and they've got plenty of food and after a time they start to age and they're saying well we've got all this good stuff but but look we're aging and and the devil says yes hell isn't it uh, yes and then there's the other one of um a gentleman that uh, that dies and is given the choice whether he wants to go to heaven or hell and so uh he says well can I take a look first? And the angel says, yes, of course. And, and so they go down to hell and there's everyone having a big party. It's all wonderful fun. There's plenty of food and all sorts of nefarious activities going on, which and he gets him very excited. And, and he says, right, okay, let's, let's go up and see heaven. And, and so he goes up, sees heaven and, and uh, everyone's sitting around in, meditation and peace and he says well you know what that looks a bit boring to me I think I'll choose hell that looked a lot more fun so Danny goes to hell and of course there is the classic fiery pits and uh, demons torture etc and, and he says but I, I don't understand just a moment ago it was it was all happiness and and food and all of that and the devil says yeah that's the hell we show to visitors. <laughs> this is the permanent resident one. Oh. So, <laughs> yes, a couple of, couple of Sufi stories there. But uh, again, it's, it's looking at this idea of hell and the devil not so much being tricksters, it not, it, things just not being what we expect. Hmm. And a lot of these deals with the devil stories, a lot of where the protagonists get skewered is their expectations of what the, the deal will be, what the consequences would be. And we were talking earlier about the monkey's paw. I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where, of course, you've got the, the three wishes, but they don't come true in the way that the protagonist expects. Yeah, it's a it's a classic. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, they they wish for um, I think they wish for a hundred pounds, which mm -hmm. of course back then was a huge amount of money. Mm. Yes, and the uh, they get a they get a knock on the door and say your son has died in the factories at work, and as compensation, here is one hundred pounds. And and, and um, massive spoilers, of course. <laughs> uh, so then the the mum, grief stricken, wishes for the son back, and basically what you then get is a very early representation of a zombie. Mm -hmm. In a, I think it was even a Victorian story, and and then as he's marching to the door and, and and about to knock on it, I thought at that point he was actually banging on the door. He might have been. It's been a while since I've read it, but mm. yeah, he must be because the 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 mum slash wife is is running to the door, and the yes, he must be knocking mm. because then the husband cannot convince her to not do it, so he uses the final wish to get rid of it, mm. and then he's back where he started, and and you should be happy with what you have. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I am. Um, 
I've quite taken to a Latin phrase recently of uh, memento mori, mm-hmm. uh, remember that you will die, mm-hmm. uh, which of course in, in uh, Christianity is that, you know, don't own too much because you can't take it with you. But f- for me, it is, a, it is a reminder that you should be happy with what you have, like mm-hmm. we're discussing here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, there's a, um, another Sufi story that I will um, just drop in there. God, you're really peppering these. I <laughs> am, yes. Well, we've, we've had the Judeo-Christian stuff. Let's have the, the, let's have the, the, the Sufi stuff. Um, but there was, a, there was once a king, great king, and he wanted, he wanted a ring with an inscription that would make him happy when he was sad and sad when he was happy. Uh, and the inscription that he finally got was, this too shall pass. Mm. Oof. So when he, was, <laughs> when he was being taken along on his elephants with everyone lauding and, and praising, he could look down and see, this too shall pass. And when he was in the depths of dis- his despair, he could look at it, this too shall pass. Mm. There's a tattoo idea for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we should probably leave it there. Because this too shall pass. Oh, oh. And has passed. That's a, oh, a good dad job. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, thank you once again for joining us. Yes, thank um, you very much. Yeah, until next time. Excellent. Thank you for joining us on Shadows at the Door. You've been listening to a Shadows at the Door production. Story by Washington Irving, adapted by Mark Nixon. Performances by David Alt. Music by Nico Vertese. Editing by Mark Nixon. Copyright held by Shadows at the Door Publishing. If you enjoyed this production, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you very soon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.